0: Please.
1: truth seekers and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Shop for official Truth and & Rhythm and & Funk and & Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg@funkinstuff.net. at For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership Dutch saxophonist singer and composer Candy Dolfer. Well, known for her long association with Prince as well as her own distinguished work as a solo artist. First seen with Prince in his 1989 Party Man video, she played on Graffiti Bridge, the Love Symbol album, Musicology, and 3121, and also toured with Prince extensively. The daughter of jazz saxman Hans Dolfer, Candy is a dynamic live performer who since 1990 has released 12 studio albums and worked with dozens of name acts, including. Dave Stewart, Maceo Parker, The Time, Mavis Staples, Aretha Pink Floyd, Blondie, and Sheila E. Especially exciting is that she has a brand new album. It's called We Never Stop, and it includes a collaboration with Niall Rogers. All the way from Amsterdam, Candy, thank you so much for joining me. How are you?
0: Thanks for having me. Hi, how are you?
1: I'm doing excellent. So, um, you know, been wanting to have you on the show for so long, and you know, we got sidelined by that nasty pandemic and all that. But yeah. it's so good to be up and running again.
0: Yeah, it is. Thank you for having me. And uh, I know you uh, uh, reached out to us before, and then there was never the time. So I'm glad that we now can finally make it work.
1: Absolutely. And uh, you know, I had uh, Joseph Bowie on the show, and I guess he's a good friend it. of the family. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's a Dutchie now. He lives in the, in the Netherlands already for for quite a quite some time. I'm very happy because he's one of my inspirations, him and defunct. And suddenly uh, I I heard that he lived in a little village here in Amsterdam and uh, that's uh, in the the Netherlands. And it's so cool. He's a great friend, uh, of my dad, my parents, and he's the sweetest man. And yeah, just, uh, you know, music legends and they live in my country.
1: Yeah. So speaking of that, Candy, what is it about, you know, the Netherlands, it seems to have embraced funk so much. I mean, there's a lot of acts there I'm aware of, like, um, you know, Eden uh, Nielsen and Dodge and Suzanne Alt and 711, 11 And, you know, all these folks over there seem to have embraced the funk. Why do you think that is?
0: Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that, like, totally, but I think uh, for one, it's probably because I think funk is the total Antithesis, thesis how you said, of Dutch people. <laughs> you know, we would be, we walk in clay on wooden shoes and we have uh, sadly no real music of our own. We have some, but it's awful with, you know, accordions and it's uh, very folksy. So I think, yeah, African-American music in general, you know, it's the most exotic, most opposite of what we were or what we are. And it just, that always, you know, draws each other in. And uh, yeah, and also, Well, I mean, we're going to talk about Prince, but somebody like Prince, for instance, I think he was also embraced uh, as well as, for instance, jazz music and improvised music, because the sense of freedom really um, attracts us in the Netherlands. We are very free spirited uh, um, people in the sense that we we have no caste system. We have uh, very little respect for, um, you know, higher ups. Uh, We have a queen or a king, but. It doesn't really say anything. We are known as the people that are that want to be free all the time and want to be very autonomous or uh, autonomous. Sorry, um, and so I think jazz or somebody like Prince or the you know the, the Sly Stone or something that really moves us because there's are there are people that are trying to be free and are being free in their heads, and I think that really appeals to our sense of freedom that we always want to have. Uh, so I think that those two reasons, maybe, um, and also, yeah. For a while, I think we've always been, you know, we are the port to Europe in many ways. We have our, our airport, and most acts come through us to the rest of Europe. So, yeah, people just start with us, and then uh, and they think this little country, you know, what can this be? And then they arrive, and yeah, I mean, I'm not somebody who's terribly proud of our own country. My God, no, but. Uh, I hear it a lot of times from my fellow musicians, like, oh, Holland, it's so great, it's so free-spirited, you know, so I'm glad we at least have the image still, <laughs> and uh, that we can, I hope we can live up to that, because, yeah, but uh, I think that those are the main reasons, and we have beautiful girls in, in the Netherlands, because we have such a, yeah, we have people from all over the place, and uh, that makes for a beautiful population, So I know all the male musicians were always very happy to end up in, uh, in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands, Always to, you know, they love the girls over there to look at, hopefully.
1: Well, I certainly hope one day to get over there. I never have been, but uh, maybe one day.
0: Yeah, Uh, I I hope you can. It would be great.
1: So, Candy, given your family and your father and all that, I mean, you know, was it kind of, uh, uh, you know, written in in stone that you would be a musician? You know, I mean, was there any other way to go? And why did you choose saxophone in particular?
0: Well, I was I I was a very shy child. I was the only child, very protected. My parents both are, I mean, they still call me like, uh, are you driving alone? Uh, where are you going? Is somebody taking you? And I'm 53 years old. So I was very sheltered, very, you know, uh, protected. Um, so, and also, I think my parents both from their childhoods, they had the feeling like whatever she wants to be, she should be able to do that. Uh, we're not going to push her into anything but if she shows any interest of course so we will help her with that and that was the key with music and people say oh you started so early but actually it's not that early if you think that I was like in my baby crib I was already being taken to concerts and it wasn't until I was six or seven that I or five actually that I asked my dad can I play you know saxophone for a bit Um, and then he uh, I think the first the main reason that I started and stuck to it a little bit because it was not really Uh, my character to do a wild hobby like playing the saxophone it's just that it gave me uh, some extra time with my dad because my father is a musician but he also wanted to take good care of us always so he he decided next to his musical career which was totally full-blown he would also sell cars for General Motors in the Netherlands Opels and um, uh, yeah he just you know he was there he was a fantastic dad but he would be coming home from his work during the day at like five and then he had two hours to eat with us sit with us and then he would go off to one gig and come at home uh, you know three o'clock at night so i love my daddy so uh, every time i had the slightest chance of being with him you know spending some time with him i would you know just go for it and so then i started playing the sax and i just played two notes and i remember my father saying wow how do you know to play that thing how do you know how to hold it but Duh, I was looking at him for the first five years of my life, but it was such a nice moment that I thought, Ooh, okay, if I want to spend more time with my dad, then, you know, l- let's do this music thing together. And that's what we did. And uh, he taught me one lesson and then already got really exasperated, like, because uh, I was saying, no, dad, that's a G, I think it's not an A. And and he was self taught, so he was not very confident in his method. So he said, oh, you know, we'll bring you to some kind of actually yeah, I started uh at a brass band uh local brass band, and they taught me the basics, and that's all I know. It's horrible. I never went to conservatory, never went to music school. I got two years of brass band education, and that's it.
1: well, you know saxophone's my primary instrument too oh
0: wow uh, and, and alto
1: okay. and and I passed that along to my only son who uh is partially named after Maceo, so
0: oh wow, I like that yeah, yeah. Nice. I'm, uh, I, when I was a girl, if I would have been a boy, I would have been named Sonny after Sonny Rollins. And actually the first choice for my mom was Lily, which is weird because many years later I got a huge hit with Lily and I didn't name that song. It was already the, had that name. And then uh, Candy is actually the name of a drummer called Candy Finch. And he used to play with, Um, it was a guy, and he used to play with Dizzy Gillespie. And my parents met him one time when they were playing in the Netherlands and he was just such a beautiful person such a beautiful spirit great drummer that the, my mom changed her plans said okay if it's a girl it's going to be candy and he died very young so I'm always I always feel I have to carry his torch a little bit I don't know if I can but uh, try to, to
1: yeah and who were some of your you know top inspirations on saxophone aside from your dad or from Sonny Rollins who you just mentioned Who who else might there be?
0: Well, I was spoiled because my father next to, aside from being a saxophone player himself, he also organized a lot of concerts in the Paradiso, which is a famous place in the Netherlands, and the Bim House. Like the, that was the epicenter of jazz in, in the, the Netherlands. So he would engage. I I, I think I've seen Arnett Cobb play many times. It's one of the jazz greats. Uh, um, uh, R.C. Shepp was there. Uh, John McLaughlin, the guitar player. Uh, Sun Ra. I've seen, I saw before my fifth year, I think I saw the whole history of jazz coming through the Netherlands at least and uh, so yeah my my standard has always been very high that's why I'm also always very self-critical because I've seen all these people play in their prime maybe or their yeah I mean you know in 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 very good years I've seen Miles Davis play uh, maybe 10 times I saw Steps Ahead David Sanborn all that stuff that I draw all my inspiration for from I saw them live so yeah I was really spoiled so from the saxophone players, I would say my main influences who I never saw live were Cannonball, Charlie Parker, Maceo Parker, who I did see live many times and got to work with, uh, David Sanborn, and my dad. That's, that's the five people that I think I've stolen the most from. <laughs> and then there's Eddie M. And actually I didn't realize what a, what a huge influence Eddie has been on me uh, until much later. When I was playing actually with Prince and Prince was uh, playing me a tape of something and I was listening back to it and I thought, wow, finally, I listened back to something. And I sound pretty good here. I'm, I'm pretty good. And then it was Eddie M and I looked on the ta- and he thought also it was me. And I said, wow. no, it's too perfect. It's Eddie M. So when I later got to meet Eddie um, through Sheila. Sheila E uh, I I just told him you you have no idea I mean you you brought it all together for me because Eddie was Maceo Parker Eddie was Eric Leeds a little bit before Eric Leeds he brought the Prince sound into the the saxophone he was the first one you know in Sheila's band to incorporate the jazz the funk and Prince's music together that the Minneapolis sound so yeah I owe him a lot and it just I think we both have the same heroes, but I also listened to him, him of course, because I was also a huge Prince fan. So Eddie M is always
1: my Yeah, favorite. he's a great guy. He's been on the show. Yeah, and knowing actually. how humble he is, he'd probably yeah. be very flattered to hear what you just said.
0: Yeah, no, he knows it. I told him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Candy, you know, I'm trying to uh, clarify where your first uh, real break came. You know, was it with Dave Stewart first or was it Prince and then Dave Stewart? Or how did that It's very take
0: confusing place? because... Uh, the timeline is very it's overlapping so um, before I met either of them I was just uh, making a little name for myself in the Netherlands I had a funk band with all kinds of fantastic musicians that were way older than me and way better and we just we created this sort of a you know a momentum nobody was into funk back then but we were the only funk band in the Netherlands so we were gigging quite a bit and then I was 17 or 18 I think I first um, met Dave Stewart and recorded uh, Lily was here and that whole soundtrack, and it was because I knew my my boyfriend was an actor in the movie that uh, Dave was scoring for, so very coincidental. Uh, but after we recorded that, there was a long period of just that sitting, you know, uh, in the cutting room uh, with the film, uh, the movie that it was made for. So, and in the meantime, I got to meet Prince and played with him in Rotterdam. This. Free gig where I was supposed to be the support act, but uh, somebody canceled me, I thought it was Prince. I got angry, wrote him a note. And then finally, on the third day, he invited me up on the stage. Uh, and then actually, I went pretty fast after that, I went to Prince and just caught the end of the tour, Washington and a few more dates of the Love Sexy tour. Uh, and he, he that's where he just took me and sometimes let, had me play or just let me study, you know, what he was doing. And then I started living in Minneapolis. And at one point I came back and then somebody just told me, congratulations on your single. And I was like, single, I have no record. I've never made a record in my life. What are you talking about? And he said, with the movie. And nobody had told me it was out. And it went so fast that it was in the week that I came home and I was just trying to land from having haven't been with Prince for a few months, uh, at least this is my recollection. Uh, and then suddenly it was a number one. So it was really weird. Uh, and I had just decided that I didn't want to stay that long with Prince in Minneapolis because it was very lonely for me. I was so young, you know, and he was all over the place. He was in his prime, you know, going everywhere. So sometimes I'd been in, in the motel, sitting there for four weeks, having nothing to do, no car, no cell phones that, you know, back then. So I just decided, okay, maybe this is not the life for me. I'm too young for this or too attached to my my family, blah, blah, blah. So I just left Prince and I came home and I thought, oh, I'm so stupid. You know, everybody just said, you are crazy. You just left a chance of a lifetime. And just at that moment, I got a number one single with Dave Stewart. <laughs> I was saved. And then people thought, oh, maybe... There is a, ma- a method to the madness, but people were just, people were angry at me, stopping me in the streets in the Netherlands saying, you are nuts. We all want this chance with Prince and you just threw it away. You're dumb. And And uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but uh, they saved me.
1: <laughs> wow. So how nervous were you when you got pulled on stage with Prince that first time?
0: Yeah, it's so funny. It's, um, I think less, way less nervous than I would be now because I was so young I had no idea and I thought you know what Um, he's 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 just doing this to make it make it up to me because he it got out the word got out in the press like oh our local girl Candy has been cancelled from the shows and I had given some interviews like uh, you know score how do you say it Um, spoiled child like uh, he didn't let us play and you know, it's not nice to cancel somebody right before a show, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you don't know the life of the stars or, or big artists, you don't know what's all what's happening. You know, as an outsider, you're just like, they're just being divas, you know, they're not being nice. So I think he, he saw that press and then the, and Sheila said, I don't know what this girl, but you better let her play because if she's good, she's good. And if she's bad, then she has her, you know, she can eat her head and go home. And so when that happened, it was all a whirlwind. But you have to understand, I was at the, he was doing three shows in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam, which is one and a half hour away from where I was living at the time. Um, so the first gig, we were canceled. I went home. Second day, I stayed in bed. You know, I was a teenager. I was like, oh, you didn't let us play. So the third night, my boyfriend said, OK, over with the crying. You're coming with us. Uh, and we're just going to have a great night you want we have free tickets now from you know and you're a Prince fan so we're going to go there so I didn't want to go but he just I don't know I was very happy that he did so I went there back in the back of the car like "Mm." very determined to not like the show but of course and then we were there a few hours before the show just to get a good well not a seat but a place on the field you know because back then you didn't even have those barriers you had to Come in at like two o'clock in the afternoon and run and get your best place, you know. So we were there very early and then one hour before the show or one and a half hour, I have to say, they called my name over the speakers and I I had a heart attack. I thought my parents maybe had a car accident or, so. you know, they they would never do that unless it was very serious in those days. So I ran to backstage and then the guys from the promoter were there and they said, hey, you were here. Well, that's great. He wants to make it up to you. You can play with him. And I said, but I didn't bring my saxophone. I was just being, you know, an audience, a, a fan. So they got me a saxophone that was horrible. It sounded like it's a, <clears throat> I couldn't even get a sound out of it. And 10 minutes before, well, not even three minutes before I was already standing with that saxophone on the side of the stage. My parents drove in from where, where we were living, was well because I called them like, mom, dad, I have to play with Prince. I need my sex. And they got in the car right away, but they got stopped after 10 minutes by the local police. And they say, sir, you're driving 160 miles an hour. What are you doing? And this is how popular Prince was then back then in the Netherlands. And my dad said, yeah, but she has to play with Prince. My daughter is like 18. And she play, She's playing with Prince tonight. She needs her saxophone. And then they said, oh, well, and they gave my dad a police escort, three cars, sirens, I kid you not, all the way to Rotterdam. So this was all happening. So I wasn't even thinking about being nervous. I was just like, I was, I was in my mind. I was like, okay, I'm, if the, if this is the saxophone I have to work with, I'm going to run away. I'm just going to run out of the stadium and, you know, like go like this. I don't want to be on stage with this thing. And then I hear my dad, candy. And he, my mom had already put the saxophone together and she threw it to me and then I was on stage, so I was totally, you know, it was like almost like blackout, but they played a song that I knew, a Charlie Parker jazz song, actually. And I just jammed with them and I I showed him my few jazz licks that I had that weren't even really good jazz licks, but but prince was like, What? You know, he didn't expect a, a 18-year-old girl from the Netherlands, you know. Yeah, it was all very back then. He, uh, we have a little recording of it my father made a secret recording in his pocket with the walkman you know back then and it's and you hear him you hear prince yell uh hey wait a minute whose house is this and then people go, get yeah, this house and it just it was all a blur and i came off stage i didn't even know what i played you know so if I, if something would happen to me now as an older person, I would be way more nervous, but I would also have a more sense of, okay, then I'm going to do this. But I think fortunately for me, um, I played totally on instinct and yeah, I was just there and I remember being like this, I don't know what I did, came off stage. My father was so nervous. He threw a whole bottle of water all over us. <laughs> like, here's some drink. It was so big, you know, it's like superstar, you know, fixed wow. this little midget from the Netherlands. And I thought this was it. And then he started calling me in the middle of the night, uh, uh, how Prince always did, you know, and with his low voice. And uh, he said, I liked what you did. You can come to Minneapolis and I'll produce a record for you. Now, yeah, uh, a, it's like a girl's, or, or no, it's not a girl's dream. I say it's a teenage dream that somebody, you know, sees you and and thinks, okay, I can make you a star. And then he tried, and then I said no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But he liked it for a long time. He liked that the subordination. How to call it? What I was always doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, you were independent, so that's probably made him even, you know, want to found you more attractive and more appealing that way, probably.
0: Yeah, he was always intrigued by me uh, in a very... You have to remember back then, you know, he, was, it was, he had a big sense of humor and he would just be like, you know, he was revered by everybody. He had everybody around him that was like, oh, Prince, you know, I think the only one that probably didn't uh, act like that was maybe Sheila E. or something, but everybody around him was like, oh, you know, and and then suddenly there's this little girl goes, um, I don't know if I want to do that. So what do you want to do to, you know, do you want to... I was telling him constantly, I thought I have to keep him on his toes. Like he has to be intrigued by me because he is Eric Leeds. He can have anybody he wants. So I would just go like, so do you know jazz music? You know, I was 18 and he would be like, "Uh, yeah. And I'd be like, so, so, you know, Coltrane? He said, yeah. And said, do you know Fela Kuti? And he would say, no, who's that? And I was like, ah you don't know him and so I would you know make him think that I had this huge knowledge of chess <laughs> but sometimes I would call my dad dad tell me something else that I should tell him that he doesn't know you know <laughs> it was so funny and he, of course he understood all that he was so smart and um intelligent Um, but he just humored me because he thought what is this you know he had Kim Basinger as a girlfriend you know like very so like that, and then there's this chubby teenager from Amsterdam telling him the whole day what he should do and what she's not going to do for him and what she is. It's it's just very comical if I think back, and I'm I'm very proud that he tolerated me for that long a period. And he was very sweet always to my mom as well. You know, it's, it's just special.
1: Uh, and you got name checked, you know, right off the bat in that video. So, yeah. you know, that must have just blown your mind a little bit.
0: It It had, but you know... I think for an American teenager in music, that would be like yes, I made it. I'm gonna. I was so I had no clue. I was like okay, and I was like I, I couldn't believe it. A part of me zoned out because it was so big that I couldn't really fathom it. So a lot of people like this is your big break you're gonna make, and I was like, but I I never wanted a big break. I just want to play the saxophone. I want to play my music, you know. So great, but I had no idea what he. With just that little catchphrase had done for me. I I probably was even unthankful. I was just like, oh okay, the whole time, <laughs> and, le- and not until later I understood what that means. If somebody from you know such such a legend name checks you in a video, and you can keep that moniker for the rest of your life, you know, it's just amazing.
1: I was going to say, you became the party man girl right off the bat. Yeah,
0: it's just and so many things are so funny. And you see him like, I mean, we can talk freely because I think there's a lot of Prince fans watching your show and your Prince fan go into details because I never tell these things. But for instance, you see me on the piano uh, standing and he's uh, uh, sliding and he so comes on between my legs, right? Actually, it was supposed to be the other way around. So we came into these Universal Studios, the big studios, it's like a whole crazy situation. And my, uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to be really made up, really beautiful. But my whole face was, you know, half my face was white. And I got this old suit on, like old smoking from the 50s. And then he said, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, uh, later uh, I'm going to, you know, stand on the piano and you just come sliding through my legs with the saxophone and you start your solo. I was like, I said, have you any idea? I mean, I'm not you. I have, you know, I've never... I'm totally horrible at sports I can't even run one round around the track I don't dance what do you think I am so and that's this is something that happened many times during our relationship all of the years he'd be like okay never mind I'll do it that's (laughs) that's how it came about and it was just so funny and every time he had all these plans for me and then in the end, it was always me like, I don't know. I don't think I should do that, Prince. I don't know if I can do that. And then he would always have to solve these issues for me. But he would do it. And that's just great about him.
1: <laughs> he, I guess he kind of took it for granted that if he can do something, probably others can too, right?
0: Yeah, a little bit. And he was so used that, you know, American young people that want to break in, in what kind of business you know doesn't matter they are so focused and they are so they know what they want and they go for it there's like six billion people out there in your country that want to do the same thing but I was just like I had a totally different uh, thing happening where I you know in the Netherlands we don't strive so much I mean now it's different but back in the days it was like okay I'll do this or I'll do that it was all very easy going and so he was so used so to ambitious women and men being wanting to be a part of his stuff that, and then, and then he had me, who was like, "Yeah, I don't know."
1: <laughs> Take it or leave it, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he
0: shook his head many times. And...
1: What, um, what were your early impressions of him in terms of just you know a personality and as a talent?
0: I thought he was very funny. Much funnier than I had expected, as just being a fan of his. So uh, I also, I think that came later, more in a in um that I started worrying about that more. But in the beginning, I thought, wow, he's quite alone, you know. He's so that's how it is to be a big. That's what it is to be a big star. It's it's. I right away noticed some stuff that I thought, wow. So okay, I wouldn't want that in my life, you know. The the people going crazy they're constantly having you know back then he had Gilbert with him you know the big uh, bodyguard and they had to always go through the basement everywhere you know if you, they if we entered a building it always had to go from the back and it was so much hoopla you know I, I noticed right away okay your freedom is totally gone and that sort of really struck me in the beginning Uh, I thought he was really sweet but I also felt right away okay this is a guy that. If you get too close to him, he doesn't like it. If you back off too much and you're not engaged with him, you know, he also doesn't like it. You have to keep him on his toes to be long. You know, I was like, okay, I love this. I love being in the vicinity of such a genius musician. I want to do this as long as he lets me. So um, I thought I needed to be extra interesting and bring him something that he couldn't get from other people. And of course, that's impossible because he could have got any saxophone player, but... I think that's what I try to do mostly in my head. Like, okay, I can't be boring. I I have to be on my toes all the time. I'm not the best saxophone player in the world. But if he calls me, I got to get the cue right away. And and that's what I think my strength with him together with other musicians that, although I had already been my own boss for my own band back then for a few years, uh, I always felt and I still feel this way. If you play with somebody else, another artist then I want to be the best soldier you know I do everything they say I want to be there on the spot do it as as far as music goes so I was always you know and I was able to work a lot without sleep that's I got that from my family and he was not used to it a lot of people were always like yawning in the studio you know and he would always look at me and I'd be like So are we going to do something else? (laughs) And later that got me a lot of trouble with the bands because I would always challenge him if we did gigs later also with the musicology tour or actually one night alone. And when we were done after like six hour sound check, a four hour gig and an after show, we would go off stage and he would be looking around and I would be saying to him like, so you're tired? And then he said, okay, let's go back. Candy says she's not tired. And then we had to do another song and then the band was all mad at me. But yeah, those things uh, I, I noticed right away, like, okay, this is a special guy, but he's also lonely. He likes company, but in the way that he wants to be, wants to have company, which is talking about music, making music, you know, working at something. He's not somebody who goes, how so have you been? How's your life? You know, that's that's not what he was. It was just like working together. Um, which I love as well, uh, it gives gives a special friendship. It's different, but it's, you know, you, you're trying to achieve something together and then making jokes in the meantime, hanging out is, is actually the most fun, I think.
1: You mentioned that one night alone tour. I'll never forget. You know, I saw Prince, I don't know, 50, 60 times, a lot of times in all different kinds of venues. Wow. Uh, but one of the most amazing days was that one night alone at the. Um, I think it was the Kodak Theater then, or Nokia Theater on Sunset Boulevard in, in uh, California. That? Oh, and, yeah, we and did
0: House of Blues and the... Yeah. yeah, so I
1: was at the rehearsal for oh, the wow. PG members, the whole concert, and then the House of Blues. Yeah. And that day uh, with my uh, wife, we were at that, sh- all those, and I remember being at the House of Blues, you know, it's the third show of that day, yeah. uh, and we were just... In euphoria, but she was so exhausted. My wife dropped to her knees in front (laughs) of the stage at the House of Blues. And I was holding her hands and she was just so wiped out.
0: Oh my god. And there's
1: Prince still just doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. And
0: the funny thing is that uh I mean, everybody had great stamina, but there was a line, or how do you say it? Like, okay, now I'm done, you know, not another show, you know. But uh, me and Maceo having been band leaders all that time in between, yeah, we understand how hard it is when you d- want to do something extra and your band goes like, oh, do we have to go again? You know, you don't want that. So with that in mind, we always felt, okay, whatever happens, we cannot let him down. We have to be there. Yeah, even if the band falls down, which they didn't, but, you know, let's say uh, we got to be there because we know what it, how it is to be a band leader and you need that support. So, but the funny thing is, one time we were in Paris in also one night alone, and we were at the Bataclan, that place where later the shootings were. But fortunately, not then. And we had done, I don't know, a hundred things that day. And then the after show till four o'clock. And we were just like talking to each other like, I'm dead. And said, I'm dead. said, I can't I don't I can't even walk. And then um, we heard Prince doing an interview with somebody uh, next door. And then this person said, you know, like in French accent, like, so, um, yeah, it seems like Gandhi and Messio are not so tired. And then we heard him say, very matter of factly, oh, yeah, but they're never tired. And then we looked at each other. We go, oh, no, he thinks we are, <laughs> like, you know, we, he can't adjust us, but he can. He, he's just doing this to try to see if we can get tired at one point. But he's just, he, he thinks he can do anything with us. And we were like, no, I remember Messio's face, like, no, <laughs> it's so funny. So, but I, I'm very proud of the fact that he, that he at least thought that we would never, you know, fall down.
1: Yeah. And just so fantastic too, because, you know, the set list just ever changing. And, you know, if, even if you see him three times in one day, it's going to be different songs. And I remember that house of blues when he kicked into like songs like Calhoun square and stuff like that. And I was just like, Oh, this is fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it was a special period because me being a Prince fan, being such a fan of Sheila, of Winnie and Lisa, of the first band, but also the Love Sexy tour. But especially for me, my favorite was the parade tour. These musicians, you know, having watched those shows with the choreography and the jokes and the costumes. Like once we got uh, to play with Prince in that tour, uh, Prince, put everything away it was just all about music but in my the back of my mind I thought okay okay people that used to go to Prince would see choreography you know beautiful stuff and they just see us playing so we have to be on our musical toes all the time I want to know you know every song I remember when we started doing that tour we had a week to prepare and three days to do all the horn parts and there were uh 69 songs in our book and it kept adding during the tour but 69 songs we needed to know by heart we weren't reading and we had a special sign language that Greg Boyer started like uh, uh, he had that before with other bands but if we would just jam and you you know on the one he would do just this that's that's what a lot of musicians do and we would bow. but he had all kinds of sign language like would be pow, pow or, you know and we had all these things going on and we were just looking at Greg's hands and and also a lot of Synergy, uh, you know, between all of us because we were friends. We loved the same music, um, but that made that—that that was what we had to do. We had to make it musically so good because we had nothing else. We had no show. We had no lights, you know. We just had very basic stuff. And and sometimes I was a bit like, oh, I wish I was in that first shows. But I think I couldn't have done that because I was horrible at dancing and stuff like that. But this was, you know, reacting, um, improvising, not being scared, knowing hundred thousand songs. And that's my forte. Uh, so luckily that made that time uh, very special. And I, I think, and I've heard him say that, that uh, because of it was all about the music in that period, um, that was one of his happiest times in his life, he said, because this is, you know, all the other, the glitter fell away and this is what he loves and always loved. So just making music with people that he respected. I mean, I'm talking more about Maceo now and everybody uh but even me maybe um was very happy time and i'm i'm i am sure that me and or, or all the musicians and me sort of felt the same although we didn't talk a, a lot about it that we loved him really so we really wanted to make you know how you want to make somebody who's very special you want to make him happy because that rubs off on you if you can make your boss happy it's a good feeling you know you're helping him to achieve his goals and for a short period we hopefully did that and we really noticed that in him he was very after all the troubles he had before with the record companies with the baby um he lost you know I think this was a time where he could relax and leave it to the others not to say that he couldn't do that with the other musicians and tours he did my god they were awesome but this was something a period that he needed in his life and we were there to to you know um yeah, help him with that. And that makes me very happy and proud that period.
1: Absolutely. I felt like it was kind of a renaissance for him after those hard times. That's and
0: what he said himself, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but in the studio, was the first recordings that you were on actually the Graffiti Bridge material? Is that? Uh,
0: the worst thing is, and my memory is not so detailed, so I have to say, yeah, I think we first did Party Man and that was sort of, it wasn't even on that album because it was after the album was finished. It was sort of a alternative single, the video mix. Um, and then he was in the studio working on Graffiti Bridge. But I think my first solo was on a Jill's uh, Stone record. No, now, what I'm saying, Jill Scott record, sorry. Um,
1: Jill Jones or Jill Jones? Uh, Jill Scott. Jones,
0: Jesus. I'm, I'm getting three singers confused. Jill <laughs> Jones, sorry. I think that was the first thing I did actually in the studio. Uh, And something for Mavis, because that was still with the Batman thing. And then he started Graffiti Bridge. And then uh, I got to do stuff with the time. And I got to meet Jerome. And it it was also, you know, you have to imagine, you know, you're a fan. I was a fan too. So I'm standing there. Suddenly, Morris and Jerome walk in. And they are exactly as funny as you think they are. Never stopping, you know, being sweet. They were Nobody, uh, like, if everybody... Would even wonder but prince nobody around there ever was any other than very sweet to me or you know never any weird stuff it was always very respectful i was like the baby of the people uh, the the whole thing and they treated me like that so it was just too too sweet and too funny sometimes and, and i a through friends that i would sometimes call you know i was like okay so who do you think i'm with today and they'd be like oh god stop it it said Morris Day, Jerome, he held the mirror up, you know, like stuff like that. It was so so nice. And I could share it with my friends back home, but it was just a dream.
1: Yeah. When you came in was when they got back together again for a short period too. So you got to enjoy that. Um, Yeah.
0: That was also special. And it felt very positive because, yeah, I don't know what ever really happened back there, but there must have been some negative stuff. And uh, uh, that was so nice. And everybody's like, oh, okay. You know, and everybody's happy about that Uh, you know, that reunion.
1: When you did the studio stuff, Candy, did you get much direction on what to bring to it? Or did you just kind of wing it?
0: Well, this is really funny. And it was totally up my street because I was always afraid he would give me, uh, you know, parts like notes to read. Cause I, I can't read notes uh, oh, well, a little bit, but not much. So I was always afraid of that, but instead he would just give me little directions. He would basically always let me do my thing. Cause he knew I was a, Sort of a jazz player. I, I could improvise. I was had no fear in that way, sense. Uh, but sometimes he would give me extra. So uh, he would say like, um, "Okay, I want you to play a short solo on this, but I want you to play really weird, like crazy." Okay, well, that I could do. Or he would say to me, "I want you to play a solo, but you can only uh, use uh, B, G, A, and F or something crazy." So, and that was I love these challenges because I was never afraid of that. I was afraid of the strict the structured stuff that that I would have totally flung. But this is stuff that I, I could do. So uh, that was always fun. And also one, one thing that always, uh, that's really, for me, was a big lesson is he, he would let me play a solo. I would hate it. He would already like it. Uh, and he just only would let me do it two or three times, but never more. And you have to know in other areas of music, my album still to this day, but also people like David Salmon, who I revere, and Marcus Miller, they... Man, they go in the studio and sometimes they work a whole night on one one solo. You know, they keep adding it. So it's not rare to do that. But he just he said, no, 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 no. You should have. And I was like, but it's not good yet. I want it to be really good. He'd be like, yeah, you should have played better. OK. <laughs> and he loved it anyway. But he he sort of brought my criticism down a little bit on, to myself. And I think he saw I needed that because it made me um, not do certain things. And he told me, no, it's great. Everybody loves this. It's good. And he, would, he wouldn't he would even say that. He would just be like, I would say, shall I do it one more time? No. <laughs> That's the only thing you heard. But can I? No. Okay. <laughs> and I would go back in the control room and sit there and watch him work. And then at one point he would sometimes, I was so young, if, especially in the beginning, I was there alone, but I just wanted to see everything he was doing in the studio, how he would record. And then he would be busy and he would be really nice. And then suddenly he would realize, oh shit, Candy's still here. And he'd be like, you know, looking at what you're still doing here. I'm like, I'm just watching you work. I like it. Yeah. Get her a taxi. (laughs) Because at one point he wanted to be, you know, totally in the moment. and wouldn't want anything, anybody there. He would even send his technician out. But once my mom came into play, he always let her stay. So even he would say like, don't you have something to do? Or can you give me a tea? And my mom would just be sitting there and he would never send her away, always keep her in the studio. And she was just sitting there knitting or hanging out, you know. He was really sweet to my mom. He loved her. Huh.
1: What uh, one or two tracks that you did with Prince uh, were you most proud of, do you think?
0: That's a hard question. Uh who- I always think my best moments were not captured or they sound horrible because like one out alone that's recorded on the console. I hated the, the saxophone sound. But I think I, I'm actually most proud. I think the stuff that we did for the time because it was so way out. And I'm so proud that I did that. Like you know, the screaming and the thing and the funky stuff. And we did some really interesting stuff there. Um uh, which was the song? Uh Choc- on chocolate or the other one Geez, i don't even know myself well on the that, pandemonium no, that,
1: album yeah
0: yeah pandemonium and the stuff that I did, I did there i thought that was really wild and different you know and and nobody or maybe not many people could have done it like that so that was makes me proud and sometimes i played solos with him i know when we did together um uh uh nothing compares to you uh we did some great i don't think the greatest solo was ever recorded because I've done it so many times and it was great but when we were at Ellen I was like "Mm." and when we were in one night alone or the tour film I don't know if I really like that one but yeah that's you know you get one moment and you have to do it and um, with Prince you would think that that's strange that I never thought that in advance but when you're there you think that everything is going to be arranged for you like the, the sound is going to be great your costumes are all hanging there but he just once I worked with him, he just threw all that out of the window. So I, I remember he, the whole career, he bought me one suit by Dolce & Gabbana, which is expensive. But I figured all the people that he had in his band, he would always buy loads of stuff for and equipment and guitars or saxophones, blah, 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 sound stuff. He just had me playing my own stuff and I had this one suit and I, he let me choose it myself. And then I came in and I was really, it was really a cool, like a tuxedo suit and Dolce and & Gabbana, the cut is just you know, exquisite. It's Italian and I'd never uh, owned something so expensive. So I came in, but I, I chose black because I was always a little bit uh, bigger than I wanted. So black, I thought it's, you know, nice and slimming. But of course, on the stage with him, you need a color, you know, black is it's totally, you know, you don't see it. So I just remember me coming in like, oh, this is my new suit. What do you think? I'm so happy with it. And he's like, do you have another suit? I said, no. He said, great and he never bought me anything again <laughs> so the same with the sound I thought oh I'm going to be so pampered and they'll work with me till I get the right sound I had to struggle every night I have done so many shows where I couldn't hear myself properly or you know or in the end you hear this, the sound back and only Maceo is on and I'm not on or only I am on and you don't hear me it's like it was just you have to survive you know you have to just do it and don't complain if you go to if you went to Prince afterwards, like, hey, my sound, you know, I, I, I don't think the technician had me on. And then that's a sure way to get fired. You know, we, we just always grin and bear it and go like, oh, well, tomorrow we just have to play good, even if we don't hear ourselves. That was what I learned from him anyway. Wow. Well,
1: what do you think it was about you, Kennedy, that allowed you to work with him for so long? You know, I mean, you were working with him uh, in different decades.
0: Well, I think I intrigued him because of my weirdness. <laughs> I think I always left him uh with more to one because I always ran away again if we did something, you know, for a while. I was like, okay, uh I'm going, I'm going home and um, you know, I'm I'm doing something else now. So and I think I was also lucky with Dave Stewart um uh when we did that. Uh when we had to hit single, because when I went away, yeah, I think it was. Because I left him guessing a lot of the times. And I also think I was intriguing because I was so weird. I don't think he had anybody in his vicinity that was so different than the people he was used to, and the, especially the women, you know. Um, and always uh, after a while, I would go home again and tell him, like, yeah, I, I want to go back to my band and I want to do my own thing again. And I think. thought that was like yeah in a in a way he respected that I think but I've never really asked him you know when I came back it was like the first time I worked with him I was there for a few months did graffiti bridge a few fun uh, things and then I went home and I never contacted him again and I went home saying that I was just going home to uh, meet my family but I never went back so he must have thought like she's nuts you know she's throwing away this chance but then, just I don't know what it, the second time was, but ten years later, he just calls me out of the blues, and it's just like, "Hey, uh, how are you?" And um, he said, "So you're you're doing good, right?" Yeah, I said, "I'm doing great." He said, "So uh, do you want to go on tour?" Yes, and that's the only thing we ever said about the, the ten-year hiatus in between. And I thought, let's not bring it up because, you know, let's just act like nev- nothing ever happened, and I didn't run home, <laughs> run away to ho- home again. So, yeah, all these things are just shows you what a great guy he was you know that he could let that slide and thought oh well I'll try it with that crazy Dutch girl again and he loved saxophone he loved um jazz you know and he loved the thing that my father was a famous jazz musician he he liked that you know he saw a parallel also I think on a personal level with my mom and and my dad being but he saw a family where even though my father is a musician we were very close and my mom was very caring and there were no fights and stuff The the stuff that he probably lived through in his childhood so I think our little family was a little bit you know of a sort of a mirror to his family but then in a maybe in a good sense he was I think he, he really made me always aware of the fact like you you should be very happy with what you have uh you know and your mom and you, you're very lucky and back then I was so young I was like yeah I know but now I know I know
1: there's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkenslift.net. Thank you very much.